Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Genesis 3. The passage can be found on page 10 of the bulletin and also projected above. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Uh, one quick thing here, kids, before I give you uh, what I want you to listen for. Uh, I want to make you all aware of a couple of Advent resources that we have available out in the foyer. These were linked in the email this week. Uh, we have our normal um, daily prayer project. That's available out there. And uh, if you're familiar with that, we've been using this for two years, actually almost three years now. So those are out there. But we also have this other prayer guide that's based on the Book of Common Prayer. Those are available in the same container out there. Also, there was an electronic link to these this week, too. So I want to make you aware of those. Um, kids, okay, here are the three things to listen for. Uh, the first is Home Alone. Secondly, a poisonous snake. And then thirdly, I want you to be able to answer this question if maybe, like, I don't know, your parents asked you after the sermon. Um, what was the darkest day? So Home Alone, poisonous snake, and what was the darkest day? Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we confess 
uh, that we need you to be at work as we gather around your word together. And Lord, we take great comfort knowing that you have promised to do that very thing. And so we pray that you would now, by your spirit, uh, that we would behold Jesus, that we would see him, that we would follow him, that we would worship him, that we would love him, even as we taste and experience the love that he has for us. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Um, one of the best things uh, about Thanksgiving being behind us is that you can finally begin watching Christmas movies and listening to Christmas music without all of the shaming and the judgment from all of the haters who say you can't do it before, right? Um, and so uh, one of my top three favorite Christmas movies is Home Alone. The other two would be A Christmas Story and Christmas Vacation. And you can make a case for Elf, too, in there. Um, but uh, Home Alone is up there. And there's a great scene uh, midway through this movie when the two thieves, Harry and Marv, uh, finally realize Kevin's home alone. And so they're hatching the plan as to what, how they're gonna come back, when they're gonna come back to break in and rob the house. And so Harry says this. He says, well, come back tonight when it's dark. And Marv says, yeah, kids are scared of the dark. And Harry looks at him and says, you're afraid of the dark too, Marv. You know you are. And Marv tries to insist that he's not. And Harry says, yes, you are. And he continues to say, no, I'm not, not, not. Now, typically, I wouldn't cite uh, Harry and Marv as authorities on the human condition. Uh, they're right about this one, though, right? Um, for kids, and kids, you need to know this, too. It's true of grown-ups also. Uh, there is something that is really scary about the dark. And it's scary even when we don't want to admit it. And what's really interesting is that that image of darkness is an image that's all over the Bible. And most of the time when you see it showing up, it, it, it's not a good thing. So just a couple of examples of this. One is that darkness is actually one of the plagues that the Lord sends on Egypt when Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. It's one of the plagues. Uh, another example of this is Isaiah describing Israel's rebellion as darkness in chapter 9. The people walked in darkness. They've dwelt in a land of great darkness. It's not a good thing. Uh, here's the thing. That's how we think about darkness as well. So just the other night, uh, we were talking with some friends about a particular show, and somebody described it as pretty dark. And that's the kind of language that we use. We, we talk about darkness, even when we're talking about the hard things in life, when we're talking about the painful things in life, and even when we're talking about the, the sinful parts of our own lives. So you, you just think for a minute about the, the, the bitterness and the resentment that you might harbor towards somebody but that you would never speak. Or you think about the, the, the fantasies and the lusts that you indulge but maybe don't even act on. Or the addictions that, that you're enslaved to. Or it could be that, that when you think about darkness, what comes to mind is this darkness of anxiety and depression where what it feels like is that there's this sort of shadow that, that, that's cast over the whole of your life and everything is affected by it. It, it could even be, though, that, that the way that you think about darkness and experience this darkness is, is in God's absence. That, that, that he feels distant, he feels uninvolved, he feels detached from your life. And there was actually a 15th century Spanish mystic uh, named St. John of the Cross, and he described that as the dark night of the soul. There is a darkness inside of us. Here's the deal though, that there's also a darkness outside of us in the world around us. So you think about broken relationships, you think about miscarriage, 
You think about unemployment, you think about disease and leukemia and cancer, and you think especially of death itself. And I, I was just talking to somebody on Tuesday this week about uh, how it's, it's so often this time of year when, when we feel that darkness even more so than other times of the year. And no matter how hard you try to, to, to do away with this darkness, to overcome it, you can't. And it can start to feel like too much, like it's totally overwhelming. So today actually begins this season of Advent. And so we mentioned that, that, that it's this word that means coming or arrival. And so we're looking back to Jesus' first Advent and the Incarnation. But at the same time, we're looking forward to his second Advent when he'll one day return. And so um, part of what, what that is, though, what that means is that there is an ache and a longing in Advent. And I think one of the, the, the biggest gifts of Advent to us is that it actually creates space for us to acknowledge that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That there is real darkness in us and that there is real darkness in the world. And so uh, Fleming Rutledge says that Advent begins in the dark. And so what we get in, in Genesis 3 is what Kevin DeYoung calls the second darkest day in history. And the reason for that is that it's this account of how sin entered into this world. And so it's a pretty dark passage. Here's the thing that is amazing about it that we're going to see today, though. And that's that right in the middle of this very real darkness, there, there's this glimmer of light that breaks through. And it's the, the, the light of this promised redeemer. And in this case, it comes in this promise that, that, that there's going to be one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's really the message of Advent, that there is hope because of God's grace, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of your darkness. And so what we're going to do uh, over these next four weeks is we're going to look at some uh, specific Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah. We're starting this week with Genesis 3. So two points this afternoon. First, the darkness of the fall, and then secondly, the light of God's promise. So first, the, the, the darkness of the fall. So uh, I think when you come to this passage uh, to try to get a feel for what went wrong, we have to try to get a feel for uh, some of the way things were before the fall. So here's what things were before. God had created this man and this woman to, to dwell as his image bearers in really what, what's uh, best described as almost like a garden temple. It was going to be this place where they, they enjoyed life with him and it, we often say that we are created for relationship with God. That's absolutely true. But it wasn't just that, that they were created for some sort of relationship with God. It's that they were created for this deeply personal and intimate relationship with him. And so uh, all of uh, Genesis 2 uses the language of the temple. And, and the reason that's so important to see is that the temple was the place where God's special presence dwelt. It was the place where he dwelt with his people. And so in order to, to continue and enjoy that intimacy for which they were created, God did a couple of things. First, he, he takes the man. It says in Genesis 2.15 that he puts the man in the garden, and it says to work it and keep it. But that second word, keep it, could also be uh, translated as guard it. And those two words are the, the same two words that are used to describe the, the responsibilities that the priests had in the tabernacle in Numbers. And so uh, here's why that matters. It, it's a little odd to talk about guarding the garden, right? We find out, though, why Adam was called to guard the garden. So that's one thing that he does. He's, he's put in the, he puts the man in the garden to work it and to guard it. But the other thing that he did 
is he tells Adam, I want you to enjoy every tree of this garden. Every single one of these trees except this one. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, for in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Here's the point. That, that this garden temple was supposed to be this place where God dwelt with his people. And that the picture that you get in, in these early chapters of Genesis is that that wasn't just for Adam and Eve. This is actually what he wanted with all of humanity. And so Sally Lloyd-Jones says it this way in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, from the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. He would make people to share his forever happiness. They would be his children and the world would be their perfect home. And so here's the thing. That's what you were created for. That is the deepest longing of your own heart. But of course, that, that is not what life is like right now. So the question is, is why not? And the answer to that is because of what happened in Genesis 3. And what you see in Genesis 3 is the darkness of our rebellion. So how did that happen? Well, it, it starts with this serpent who comes in from the field and he slithers, not this point, he walks into the garden, right? And here's what's interesting. One of the questions that, uh, that many have thought about for many, many years is where did this serpent come from, right? The Bible never says, but a couple things that we do know that the Bible does say. One is that the, the, the serpent was created. So uh, the, the, this is a creature that God had made, but who had rebelled against him. That's important because it's not as though the serpent was some sort of like eternal being or something like that. So he was created. But the other thing that we know is from Revelation 20, where he's identified with Satan himself. The point here, though, is that this serpent is an intruder into the garden. And you find out really quickly what he's trying to do. And there's a whole lot we could say that, that's going on here in this temptation. We could preach many sermons on it. But in the end, what, what happens through the deception of this serpent is that Eve begins doubting God's word. She begins doubting his authority. And ultimately what she does is she starts to doubt his goodness and love for her. And it goes something like this. She, she starts thinking um, that, that God maybe is holding out on them. She's asking herself, why would he say we can't eat of this tree? Why would he tell us not yet unless he was withholding something good from us? And so she begins to question his goodness and whether she, he really does love her. And so verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that, it, that the tree was to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so here's what happened. This is one way to describe it. She listened to and believed the word of the serpent rather than listening to and obeying the word of God. In other words, she sided with the serpent. And that's going to become really important here. So Adam does the same thing. Remember, Adam was supposed to be guarding the garden, right? But instead, we, we hear nothing from him this whole time that the serpent is talking with Eve. And so with this one seemingly small act of rebellion, they rejected God himself, and, and this is a really important point. It's not as though Adam and Eve just broke some sort of abstract, arbitrary law that God had given. So it's a whole lot more than, than, than just a law that's here. To disobey God was to say to him, I don't want your laws. I don't want your fruit. I don't want your love. And you know what? I don't want you. That is what sin is. It's this wholesale rejection of God 
It's to say to him, I don't want anything to do with you. Get your hands off my life. And so he, he, here's the tragedy that, that's at the heart of this. It's this, that, that this God that we were created to be near is the God that we now in our sin have run away from. And so when they did this, the world became a dark place. The darkness entered into them and the darkness entered into this world. And they realized the second that that happened, that, that something is deeply wrong. A couple of ways you see this. One is this, in verse seven, they immediately try to cover themselves. So verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Remember uh, chapter two, verse 25, they were naked and unashamed. Now they know they're naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why would they do that? They did that because at that second when they ate of that tree was the very first time that they felt this awful feeling of shame. What is shame? Well, it's this sense that there is something deeply wrong with you. It's this sense, this feeling that either you have done something or something has been done to you that cannot be fixed. And they realize that right after they've eaten of this tree. And so the immediate impulse that they had, this is the immediate impulse that we have too, is to try to cover ourselves. So that's the first thing they do. They try to cover themselves. Secondly, they try to hide themselves. So verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they do that? Adam says in verse 10 why he did that. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And here's where I want you to remember the way things were. Because uh, this is so, so wrong. Uh, you need to see how heartbreaking and how awful this really is and how hopeless their situation is. That, that this God who has made you for himself, this God who has taken such joy and delight in you, that this God who has created you to get just as close as he can to you is now the God that we try to hide from. And so the result of their sin is that they're driven out of the garden away from God's presence. And so here's this tragic turn in the story. Adam and Eve actually got exactly what they wanted, which was being away from God's presence. And so that is this dark place where we're left at the end of Genesis 3. This is the darkness of our rebellion. Here's what I want us to see as well, though, is that even here, Right in the middle of our sin, right in the middle of this darkness, God shows grace. And he does so in this way that, that, that uh, we would never expect and that we might not even notice if we're not really looking for it. He pronounces this curse on the serpent, but in the middle of the serpent, he makes this promise. So secondly, the light of God's promise. And there are really two parts of this promise that I want to highlight. The first is this. There's a promise here of conflict with the serpent. So look back at verse 15. It says, I will put enmity, which is just another word for conflict or hostility, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And so God here, he's speaking to the serpent and he says he's gonna put this conflict right now between the woman and the serpent. That's part of the conflict, but then he also says he's gonna put this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so you kind of hear that and you think like, that seems like a really weird promise, right? 
So why would God do that? Why, why would he put enmity between the woman and the serpent? Well, it's because if he didn't, the woman and the serpent and her offspring would continue to, the woman and her offspring would continue to side with the serpent every single time. It would be a, a replay of the fall over and over and over again, unless God does something about it. And so what he does in his grace is he says to her and to them and to us, I'm not gonna let that happen. I'm gonna put this conflict between you two and that conflict is gonna go not just between the two of you right now. It's gonna continue to your offspring and to your offspring, offspring. And so that, that is the first part of this promise. That there's gonna be this conflict with the servant. Here's the second part. It's the promise of the defeat of the serpent. And so the second half of verse 15 he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so what God does is he, he says that the seed of the woman, which is singular here, is going to bruise or strike the head of the serpent. And then he says that that serpent is also going to bruise or strike the heel of the seed of the woman. And so this is a really mysterious and, and shadowy sort of promise. A couple things to, to notice about it here. One is this. The serpent's head is going to get bruised. It's going to get crushed, right? But... He says that the, the seed of the woman is going to suffer somehow as well. That's the, 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 what he's saying with this heel being bitten or bruised in some way. So the, the seed of the woman is going to suffer as well. The other thing to see is that part of the curse on the, on the serpent is that it's going to go on his belly. And so it's a little weird here to think, kids, maybe about what the serpent looked like before. Right? Maybe it was a, a lizard or something like that. But that's really not the point of this passage. The, the, the point uh, is that being put on your belly and being made to eat dust is, is this symbolic way of talking about the humiliation and the curse that he's now experiencing. And here's the other thing. That's actually what enables the seed of the woman to defeat the seed of the serpent. So that the, the serpent now is put on its belly and so that enables the seed of the woman to crush it. And because he's on the ground, all that's going to happen to the, the, this one who's crushing his head is he's going to uh, strike the heel of the man. And so here's what's happening. God is saying, he's saying this to Adam and Eve, but it's indirect because he's talking to the serpent. He says, I know you have rejected me. I know you've rebelled against me. I know you've turned from me, but it's not always going to be that way. Because what I am promising to do right now is to do battle with this serpent. And there's going to come a day when he is going to defeat this serpent, and it's gonna happen through one of your descendants. And so what happens then is from Genesis 3.15 onward is that, that, that theme of the seed of the woman runs throughout the Bible. And so it's picked up in the next chapter where Seth is said to be the seed of Adam and Eve. Fast forward to Genesis 12 and all the promises that are made to Abraham about his seed and offspring. That happens over and over again in the patriarchs. You go then to 2 Samuel 7, there's this promise made to David. And the promise there is that it's going to come from his seed. There, there, there will be a true king and Messiah that's gonna come from his seed. All of that points forward to the New Testament. Where then Jesus shows up and is described as the true seed of Abraham. Or he's the true seed of David and he's the true seed of the woman. And as the true seed of the woman, he will one day, once and for all, crush the head of the serpent. And so if you notice uh, in our assurance of pardon today, the way that the author of Hebrews describes 
Jesus is he says he came to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Here's the thing about this promise, though. That triumph, that defeat of the serpent is actually going to come in a way that looks like defeat for the seed of the woman. And it's because it comes in the form of his death on the cross. And so uh, Tim Keller uses this illustration. He says this, imagine there's a, a group of people or even a family of people who are out in the wilderness and they're out in the wilderness and then they see this poisonous snake that gets provoked and now comes after them. So the snake is actively coming towards him. And so in this, in this moment, uh, the, there, there's a man who steps out from this group of people and he begins to stomp it. And he stomps it and he stomps it and he stomps this snake because it's his only hope of protecting those around him from this poisonous snake. And what he eventually does is he kills the snake. He crushes its head. But then what you find out after all the dust has settled is that that serpent bit the heel of that man. And it was a fatal wound. So that now that man is going to die as well. See, that's a picture of what's happening here. God is saying that there is going to be one who destroys sin, who destroys Satan, who destroys even death itself. But in order to do that, he himself is going to die. And that's exactly what happened. That Jesus Christ, the true seed of the woman, gave his life to defeat the serpent. He, as the, the second Adam, did what, what the first Adam failed to do. And so that place where he crushes the serpent becomes then the place where we receive forgiveness for our rebellion. It's the place where, where, where we are welcomed back into God's presence after our own exile. And so this is why the, the, the promise in Genesis 3.15 has been called the first gospel, the gospel announced beforehand. And so uh, here's the question for us. What does this mean for us? And, and I want to apply it this way. What does this mean for you in the places where you feel the darkness of your sin most? In the places where you feel overcome by your own sin? Well, it means this, among other things. It means that your God has not abandoned you in your sin. It means that you uh, are not going to be defeated by your sin in the end, though it may feel like that right now. And that's why I think this is so important for us to hear and know and believe because one of the ongoing lies of Satan, one of the things that he continues to whisper in your ear is that this sin is too much. That what you've done here is too much. You're too far gone it's too great for God's grace to reach. There's not any hope for you there. And those words are really easy to begin believing. How do we fight those words? How do we fight those lies? You fight those lies by looking to the once for all work of the serpent crusher on your behalf. The hope that you have in the midst of your darkness, in the darkness of your sin, in the darkness of our world, is that Jesus defeated the serpent. And here's the thing about what he did and how he did it. He, he gave himself into the darkest of all darkness. And so in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, when they describe what happened on Good Friday, as Jesus at noon hung on the cross, this is in the middle of the day, it says 
there was darkness over all the land. And the darkness that, that they're experiencing there is not just, just a, an ordinary, normal darkness. This is the full darkness. It is the, the, the full darkness of all of the sin and evil of a world in rebellion against its creator. It's the, the, the darkness of, of the judgment that you and I deserve. This day, Good Friday, was the darkest of all history. Here's the thing, though. John says that that darkness did not overcome him. And the reason for that is because three days later, what happened is that this light burst forth out of, into that darkness. And it came in the form of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And here's the thing. It's that resurrection that is the guarantee that your sin and your darkness will not win in the end. That the, the, the darkness of your sin, the darkness of your sorrow, the darkness of our shame is going to be cast out by the light of Christ. And so the, the, the Advent hope that we have is that our King is coming again. And that when he does, all of the darkness will be cast away. And it will only ever be light. And so let me, uh, let me close with this. I want to close with this quote uh, from the Jesus Storybook Bible. This one's in the front cover of your bulletin. This is uh, speaking to Adam and Eve. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you, and when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for this promise that you make all the way back to the moments after we sinned. We thank you, Lord, for your incredible commitment to us to show us grace in the midst of our sin and rebellion. And so, Father, we pray that we would continue to look to our Savior and King, this one who has crushed the head of the serpent. And, Lord, that we would find life in him. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.